Chapter Seventeen of Craddock Knoll: A Tale of the New Forest, Volume Two, by Richard Doddridge Blackmore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Lynn Thompson. Chapter Seventeen. It must not be forgotten that Rufus Hutton, all this time, was very hard at work, and so was Mrs. Corklemore. Between that lady and Eoa, pleasant little passes gave a zest to daily intercourse. George's boundless sympathies being circumscribed only by terror. Nevertheless, although Sir Craddock laughed when his spirits were good, and his mind was clear, at their fundamental difference, Georgie began to gain upon him, and Eoa to lose ground. How could it be otherwise, even if their skill had been equal, and Eoa not only had no skill, but scorned sweet Georgie for having any? How could Mrs. Corklemore fail of doing her blessed duty when she was in the house all day and eoa out jumping the river or looking about for bob garnet whatever the weather was out went eoa peering around for the tracks of bob which like those of a mole were self-evident and then hiding behind a great tree when she found him and hoping with flutter of heart about it that bob had not happened to see her yet if he happened not to see her she would go up and be cross with him and ask whether amy rosedew had turned to the right or left there or had stopped in a hollow tree and did bob think that she looked well that morning then he had no right to think so and perhaps her own new hat with black ostrich was a hideously ugly thing oh she only wished there were tigers Leave the little dear to do exactly as she liked for nothing else she will do and now in looking through the forest gray and white with winter Scorn we not the grand old trunk in our gay love of the mistletoe There is a very ancient tree an oak well known and good of fame even at the first perambulation of our legislator king It stands upon the bend and brow under which two valleys meet where a horseshoe of the wood has chanced and water takes advantage in the scoop below the tree two covered brooks fetch round high places into one another prattle satisfaction and steal away for their honeymoon without a breeze upon them this mark oak last of seven stout brothers dwells upon a surge of upland and commands three valleys two of which unite below it and the other leads them off welcoming their waters the grand tree lifts its proven column channeled ramped and crocketed flaked with brown on lines of gray and bulked with cloud-like ganglions then from the main top where is room for fifty archers to draw the bow limbs of rugged might arise spread flat or straggle downwards but the two great limbs of all the power and main glory the arms that reared their pride to heaven are stricken riven and blasted gaping with great holes and rotten heavily twisted in and out and ending in four long scraggy horns ghastly white in the winter sun where the squirrel durst not build nor the honey buzzard watch for prey this shattered hope of a noble life records the wrath of heaven the legend is that a turf cutter having murdered a way-lost peddler for the sake of his pack buried the corpse in this hollow tree and sat down on the grave to count his booty here while he was bending over the gewgaws and the trinkets 
which he had taken for gold upon the poor huckster's word and which gleamed and flashed in the august twilight the vengeance of god fell upon him in bodily form god's lightning crashed through the dome of oak above him leaped on the murderous head and drove him through the cloven earth breast to breast on his victim's corpse you may be sure that the sons of Itin, a timid and superstitious race find small attractions in that tree when the shades of night are around it john rosedew did not return on the monday nor yet on the tuesday etc not even until the last down train roared through the forest on saturday then as it rushed through the dark night of winter throwing its white breath more strong than our own and very little more fleeting in bracelets on the brown armed trees and in chains on the shoulders of heather the parson leaned back on the filthy panels of a second-class carriage and thought of the scene he had left he had written from london to miss rosedew insisting so far as he ever cared to insist on a little matter that none at home should stay up for him that no one should come to the station to meet him and that pell should be begged to hold himself ready for the sunday's duty because mr rosedew would not go home if any change should that day befall unlucky cradock nowell lucky cradock one ought to say inasmuch as for a fortnight now he had lost all sense of trouble finding from dr tink that no rapid change was impending john rosedew determined to see his home and allay his child's anxiety moreover he felt that his cure of souls must need their sunday salting now walking away from the wooded station that cloudy christmas eve for christmas that year fell on sunday how grand he found the difference from the dirty coop of london the new moon was set but the clouds began to lift above the tree-tops and a faint aurora flushed and flickered in the far northwest then out came several stars rejoicing singing in twinkles their makers praise and some of the sounds that breathe through a forest even in the hush of a winter's night began to whisper peace and death john who feared not his master's works and was happiest often in solitude trudged along with the leathern valise and three paper parcels strapped comfortably upon his ample back presently he began to think of home and his parish cares and the breadth of god spread around him and then from thinking rose unawares into higher communion for surely it is a grander thing to feel than to think of greatness and in this humour quietly he plodded his proper course for the first four miles or so until he had passed the dame slough near the blackwater stream and was over against vinney ridge but here he must needs try a short cut through the government woods to nowelhurst though even in the broad daylight he could scarcely have found his way there he thought that in spite of his orders amy would be sure to stay up for him and so he must hurry homeward at a fine brisk pace for a man of his years he plunged into the deep wood and in five minutes time he had very little hope of getting out before daylight have you ever been lost in a great wood at night alone and laden and weary where the frithings had not been cut for ten years and there is no moon or wind to guide a man and the stars glimpse so deceitfully 
how the stubs even if you are so quick-footed as not to be doubled back by them or thrown down with nostrils patulous how they catch you at the knee with three prongs apiece and make you think of white swelling then the slip where the wet has dribbled from some officious branch or sow or cow summer pasturing has kept her volutabre down you plump and your heels alone have chance of going to heaven because unless you are a wonder you employ such powerful language rising with some difficulty after doubting if it be worth the while and rubbing spitefully ever so long at the case of the part affected you have nothing for it but to start again and fall into worse disasters going very carefully then you jump from the goading repulse of a holly into the hark of a hazel bush one which has numberless clefts and tongs and is hospitable to a bramble tumbling out of it full of thorns recalling your farnaby epigram and wishing they had pelted the hazel harder away you go quite desperate now knowing well that the wood is full of swamps some of which will petrify you under sundew and blue campanula when the summer comes again through all these pleasing incidents and animating encounters john rosedew went ahead and too often a header until he was desperately tired and sat down to think about it then he heard two tawny owls hooting to one another across at least a mile of trees and every forest sound grew clearer in the stillness of the night the sharp sad cry of the martin cat the bark of the fox so impatient the rustle of the dry leaves as a weasel or rat scurred over them the wing flap of some sliding bird roused from his roost by danger the scratching of claws upon trunks now and then and the rubbing of horns against underwood these and other stranger noises stirring the down of darkness moving the sense of lonesome mystery and of fear indefinite were abroad on the air in spite of shakespeare on that christmas eve john rosedew laid his burden by and began to think or wonder what was best to do long as he had lived amid the woods he knew much more of classic sylvulae and poetical arundines than of the natural greenwood and the tasseling of morasses bob garnet would have found his way there or in any other english forest with little hesitation from his knowledge of all the epiphytes and their different aspects the bent of the winter grasses the sense which even a bramble has of sun and wind and rain he would soon have established his compass with allowance for slope and exposure the parson sat upon an ant's nest which had done its work and feeling discharged collapsed with him a big nest of the largest british ant which is mostly found near fir trees that nest alone would have told poor bob something of his whereabouts for there are not many firs in that part of the forest and only one clump high up on a hill in the wood where john rosedew had lost himself but the man of great learning was none the wiser only he felt that his small clothes were done for and mr channing's fashionable cut gone almost as prematurely as the critic who had condemned it now let me consider said mr rosedew to himself for about the fiftieth time it strikes me at the first sight though i declare i can't see anything would that i could not feel 
for I confess that these legs are grievous but putting aside that view or purview of the question it strikes me that having no antigone to lead me from this which certainly is the grove of the eumenides there is another ant gone up my leg ingentes formica laboris i wish he wouldn't work so hard though and i always have had the impression that they stayed indoors in the winter memorandum to consult theophrastus and compare him as usual with pliny also look at the geoponica full of valuable hints why there he is again biting very hard or stinging what says aristophanes about the music of the gnats indelicate i fear as he too often is nay nay good ant if indeed thou art an ant why what is that over yonder it was a dim light in the great hollow oak the murderer's tree as they called it not a hundred yards from john rosedew the parson approached it cautiously for he knew that desperate men and criminals under a ban still harboured sometimes in the forest as he drew nearer the feeble light glimmering through the entrance showed him at once what tree it was because the rays glanced through two dark holes under the bulging and beetling brow which peasants call the eyes of god john rosedew was as brave a man as ever wept for another's grief or with the word of god assuaged it no man could have less superstition unless as some would have us believe all religion is that upon this point we will not be persuaded until we have seen them live the better and die the more calmly for holding it yet john rosedew so firmly set so full of faith in his maker so far above childish fears which spring from the absence of our father he who having injured none had no dread of any yet drew back and trembled greatly at the sight before him a small reflector lamp with the wick overhung with fungus stood upon a knotted niche in the hollow of the tree by it and with his face and eyes set towards the earth a tall and powerful man stripped to the waist was leaning with one great arm beneath his forehead and bloody stripes across his back the drooping of his figure the woe in every vein of it the deep and everlasting despair in every bone it was an extremity of our human nature which neither chisel nor pen may approach nor even the mind of man conceive until it has been through it presently the man appraised his massive head and scorned himself for being so effeminate he had nearly fainted with the pain what right had he to feel it why should his paltry body quail at a flea-bite lash or so when body and soul were damned for ever but if his form had told of sorrow great god what did his face tell he never sighed nor groaned nor moaned his woe was beyond such trumpery he simply took the heavy scourge from the murderer's grave upon which it had dropped when the swoon came over him and standing well forth in the black hollow centre to gain full swing for his scorpion thongs he lashed himself over back and round breast with the utmost strength of his mighty arms with every corded muscle leaping but not a sign of pain on his face nor a nerve of his body flinching then at last he fell away and allowed himself to moan a little 
John Rosedew would have leaped forward at once in his horror at such self-cruelty But that he saw who it was and knew how his meddling would be taken He knew that Bull Garnet's religious views were very strange and peculiar and never must be meddled with except at his own request and at seasonable moments Yet he had never dreamed that self-chastisement was part of them Garnet a wild flagellant said the parson to himself well I knew that he was an enthusiast but never dreamed that he was a fanatic and how shockingly hard he hits himself strong as dr. Mastix at Sherborne but the doctor took good care never to hit himself upon my word I must run away it is too sad to laugh at what resolution that man must have he scarcely feels the blows in the agony of his mind I must reason with him about it if ever I can find occasion With such violation of his image God cannot be well pleased Meditating deeply upon this strange affair the parson plodded homewards for now He knew his way with the murderer's oak for his landmark At last he saw his quiet home and gave a very gentle knock because it was so late the door was opened by Amy herself, pale, excited, and jumping. Oh, Daddy, Daddy! Chock, 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 such a lot of kisses, and both arms round his neck. Corculum voluptus glycomelon anima mea. Oh, Papa, say Amy, dear, and then I shall know it is you. Then she laughed, and then she cried, and presently fell to at kissing again. I am afraid she proved herself a fool but allowance must be made for her because she had never learned before how to get on without her father oh you beautiful love of a daddy i was quite sure you would come you know that you would not leave me any longer so i would not listen to a single word any one of them said and i kept the kitchen fire up and a good fire in your pet room dear and i have got such a supper for you now off with your coat in a minute darling Oh, how poorly you look my own father, but we will soon put you to rights again aunt doxy is gone to bed Hurrah and so are Jemima and Jenny and she won't have the impudence to come down with all her hair in the jelly bags So I shall have you all to myself dadda and if any one can deserve you I do My own pet child my warm-hearted dear said John with the tears in his eyes I had not the least idea that your mind was so ill-regulated We must have a course of choriambics together or the heavy trimmer crime Dimeter as I have ventured to name it about which not another short syllable till you have had a light trimacral supper and not a quasi Kaisura left even Why Amy you are getting quite witty and John with one arm still in his overcoat looked at her bright eyes wonderingly of course i am dad when you come home my learning sparkles at sight of you come quick now for fear of my eating you before you begin your supper you'll have it in the kitchen you know dear because it will be so much nicer and then a pipe by the bookroom fire and a chat with your good little daughter oh father father mind you never go away from me for such a long long time again John thought to himself that ere many years he must go away from his Amy for much more than a fortnight But of course he would not damp her young joy with any such troubles now 
if you please my meritorious father you will come to the door and just smell them and then you will have five minutes allowed you to put on your dear old dressing-gown and the slippers worked by the vestal virgins five minutes by the kitchen clock and not a book to be touched mind now don't they smell lovely i put them on when i knew your knock the first mackerel of the season only caught this afternoon i sent word to mr pell for them he can do what he likes with the fishermen and you know as well as i do papa you can never resist a mackerel when john came down half the table was covered with some of his favorite authors not that she meant to let him read but only because he would miss his books a great deal more than the salt cellar and the other half she was bleaching and smoothing and stoking with a snowy cloth soft and sleek as her own bare arms setting all things in lovely order and looking at her father every moment with the skirt of her frock pinned up and her glossy hair dancing jigs on the velvet slope of her shoulders and she made him hungrier every moment by savoury word and choice innuendo worcester sauce pa darling and a little of the very best butter not mixed up with flour you know but melting on them like their native element just see how they are browning and not a bit of the skin come off what is it about the rhombus pa and when i am to read juvenile never my child very well pa dear you know best of course but i thought it was very nice about weighing hannibal in the excerptor father put that book down i can't allow any reading and after supper i shall expect you to spin me such a yarn dear to wind up the thread of your adventures tully peffine said john calmly although he was so hungry the very word poor Craddock used in his rendering of that dirge plodu necker the consecutively ma ectolipisas oikaide saleriferon inisas oh i forgot ah yes to be sure a word i mean which expresses in a figurative and yet homely manner Craddock, papa oh father have you been with him in london oh how aunt doxy has cheated me you know very well my own father that you cannot tell me a story did you go to london because poor craddock was very very ill yes said her father those soft bright eyes beamed into his so appealingly my own child your craddock is very ill indeed not dead father oh not dead no my child nor in any great danger i sincerely believe just at present then eat your supper pa while it is hot i am so glad you have seen him i am quite content with that she believed or she would have not said it and yet how far from the truth it was you shall tell me all after supper my father thank god for his mercies to me i am never in a hurry dear yet amy in dishing up the mackerel had the greatest difficulty for her breath came short and her breasts heaved fast in holding back the tide of hysterics which would have spoiled her father's supper my amulet i cannot eat a morsel while i see your hand shake darling i must tell you all i cannot bear your anxiety the second mackerel a fish of no manners instead of curling his tail at the frying had glued it to the pan until a tear of amy's fried and then he let go in a moment 
john rosedew caught his darling child and drew her to his knees with the frying-pan in her hand and then he made her look at him and she tried to have her eyes dry do what she might she could not speak only to let her neck rise and her drooping eyelids tremble my own life's love i have told you the worst god is very good to us cradock has been at the point of death but now he is better a little only his mind is in danger and it must come home very slowly if it comes at all now darling you know everything she took his magnificent silvery head between her little white hands and kissed him twice on either brow but not a word she said my own sweet child cried her father slowly passing one arm around her and swindling his heart of a smile i am apt to make the worst of things let us try to be braver or at least to have more faith she leaped up at that very last word with the dawn of a glorious smile in her eyes and she took the frying-pan once again and eased out with a white-handled knife mackerel number three but upon second thoughts she let him slide into the frizzle again to keep him warm and comfortable her heart was down very deep just now but for all that her father must have and must enjoy his supper father i am all right now only eat your supper dear what a selfish thing i am have a bit my darling heart yes i will have a bit of tail pa just to test my cookery that's what i call frying look at the blue upon him and the crisp brown shooting over it come daddy no nonsense if you please i could have eaten all three of them if i had only been out on the warren and you to come starving from london now number three papa if you please but she kept her face away from him and bent her neck peculiarly how beautifully fresh this ale is and the stuff they sell in london i am almost inclined to consider the result of taking another half glass her quick feet went pat on the cellar steps while her father was yet perpending and she came back not a whit out of breath but sweetly fresh and excited such a race pa because i know of one family of cockroaches and half suspect another they are so very imprudent robert garnet says that they stay at home and keep their christmas domestically and i need not run for fear of them at least till the end of april and perhaps he is right because he knows and studies everything nasty only i can't believe what he says about ants because it contradicts solomon who was so very much older now you paternal darling let me froth it up for you thank the lord for as good a meal as ever one of his children was blessed with the parson stood up as he said these words and put his thick but not large hands together among the crumbs on the tablecloth now if you please the leastest double superlative pa you know like foremost and something else oh they will pluck me at oxford the very leastest little drop of the old french cognac we bought for parochial rheumatism with one thin slice of lemon an abulition of water and half a knob of sugar before john could remonstrate there it was all winking at him and begging to be sniffed before sipping my pet you are so premature how can i trust your future you never give me time to consider a subject even in the first of its bearings 
to be sure not father you know quite well you would take at least eight different views of the matter and multiply them into eight others of people i never heard of now the pipe dear you shall have it here because it is so much warmer you know you can't fill it properly so the parson happy in having a child who could fill a pipe better than he could leaned back in his favorite chair which amy had wheeled in for him and held his long clay in his left hand while his right played with her hair as she sat at his feet and coaxed him sermon already dear well you know best about that amy i always trust you to arrange them never fear papa leave it to me what would you do without me i have put you out such a beauty because it is christmas day one that always makes me cry because i have heard it so often but you must have confidence in me implicit confidence my pet still i like to run my eyes over them for i cannot see as i did my eyes are getting so old i'll kiss them till you can't see one bit if you dare to say that again papa old indeed they are better than mine and i can see the pattern of a ladybird all across the room there was a ladybird on the window today at this time of year only think that was good luck wasn't it and a dear little robin flew in and perched upon the hat pegs and then i knew that you must come home oh you superstitious pet i must reason with you tomorrow end of chapter 17 End of Craddock Knoll, A Tale of the New Forest, Volume 2, by Richard Doddridge Blackmore.